0: OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to Supporters Fund, Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Podman. Let's please welcome Rachel Ten Brink, the GP of Red Bike Capital, as our investor today.
1: Hi, thank you. Delighted to be here.
0: Awesome, we're so excited to have you join us today, Rachel, for many reasons, but the biggest one for me is that you have been a branding mogul for so long jumped into entrepreneurship, and then now running a fund. You've got like the trifecta effect going here. You've got all sectors. It's just amazing. And the way we like to start our show off is we like to learn a bit more about yourself. So maybe you could share a little bit about your time from way back in Gillette, schooling, all that great stuff, all the things that you've done to where you are today with the fund. And then we're going to interject. And we want to know one question, one thing about you that nobody would know.
1: Uh Okay. So in terms of my background, uh, you know, I'm originally from Costa Rica. My parents were Cuban immigrants left right when Castro came. Uh, I was born and raised in Costa Rica and came when I was 18 to the States to go to college. Um, My career really started at Gillette. And I think there's a lot to learn from a very classical CPG training to your point about understanding brands and building distribution and building products for mass appeal. So started my career at Gillette. From there, did my MBA at Columbia, and then spent the next 15 years of my career building billion-dollar brands. I was at Estee Lauder. I was at L'Oreal. I was at Elizabeth Arden. And around 2014, I met my co-founders, um, and we started a company called Scentbird, that's a subscription service for fragrances. We really thought about uh, the category, and you know, the way you bought the, ca- the fragrance category was, you know, very broken, very confusing, very much driven by what the manufacturers wanted and not what the consumers wanted. So um, Sandbird was an incredible ride. We were backed by Y Combinator. We raised almost uh $30 million in venture. Um, my job specifically as one of the four founders was growth and revenue. So on the growth side, I like to joke that there isn't a marketing tactic that hasn't that I haven't tried. So if you want to talk paid social, if you want to talk influencers, affiliate, podcast, radio, TV, you name it, subways, um, I've literally tried them all. Uh, not all of them work. Some of them do very well. Um, and then on the growth side, it was really thinking through you. CAC to LTV ratio, unit economics, how do you build a sustainable business model? And so for Scentbird, a big piece of that was the biz dev side of it, the B2B relationship. So built partnerships with 74 brands, everybody from a Cody to a Macy's to a Glossier. And company's done extremely well. Uh, It's close to half a million monthly paying subscribers at this point and still scaling and doing great but a couple of years ago, um, you know, it started really organically. I love early stage founders. I love that inflection point where you just start to see a little bit of product market fit and you can really take off. And I think that's such an exciting time of the entrepreneur and of a startup's journey. And so it really started with, you know, I love talking to founders, giving advice, helping out, and sort of founders kept on calling other founders, talk to Rachel, talk to Rachel about influencer marketing, fundraising, uh, supply chain, you name it. And at some moment, I sort of took a breath and realized, oh my God, I have incredible deal flow. And so we had some friends who also wanted to invest, and uh, that's how Red Bike Capital got started.
0: That's amazing. And one thing about you that nobody would know.
1: I, I have it yoga. So that's really my thing.
0: <laughs> no, nope, that's good. This, that's a good thing. I was thinking you're going to say Costa Rica. You're a surfer yeah. and uh, you're a big fan of it. You're going back to surf every week. Like, no. Yeah, no. well, surfer?
1: it's funny. I was going to say I'm a Cuban, Costa Rican, Turkish, German with a Dutch last name, but it's on my Twitter profile. So I guess a lot of people know that.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, to kind of go back, I think what I really want to dive into is maybe the first question is what got you started in working in the cosmetic? Um, and this category I guess it is a broad category because there's a bunch of different areas that you jumped into but what kind of got you started in Gillette what was the drive in there was it that you saw something broken even back then or was this kind of just out of school jumping into this new opportunity and while you're in there you started to kind of wheels turning as you're kind of learning the the ropes of what's going on in this big branding company
1: so for me my obsession has always been consumer behavior I'm obsessed with, you know, what makes people tick. Oh, here's something that people don't know about it. When I was growing up, my dad had a canned tuna um, brand, it was called Splash Tuna. And the reason I bring it up is because I think it really started. So on Sundays, when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, we would go hang out in the supermarket and I would stand by the canned tuna aisle And observe people and count who was buying my dad's tuna brand versus other brands. And, you know, a 10-year-old, hey, why did you pick up that brand? What made you pick that one? (laughs) And so that's really where, where it started for me was this idea of consumer behavior. Where's the consumer mindset going? What makes people tick? What makes people, you know drive towards certain brands, certain behavior, certain technologies, that that's been something that's always sort of obsessed me. And I think that if you think about Gillette and the sort of, you know, at the time, the best a man can get the sort of the emotional connection that they were able to build, how they were, you know, capturing at the time, I mean, things have changed, but at the time, Gillette had, I think, 80% market share in the US. And so like, how do you, understand the consumer to that level and obviously you know fast forward to today the consumers become a lot more complex a lot more nuanced and and you see that you know that market dominance has definitely uh, faded a bit although it's still significant Uh, but that's really something that I've always been obsessed with is you know the the future of consumer where is the consumer going what is driving them that's really what what made me start in that journey.
0: That's a, that's a great kind of segue to that entrepreneurship world as well. So you were learning kind of in the background from what your father was putting into a brand, what he was putting into the business. You were on the front, front lines working that counter, if you will, and making sure people were picking that brand, but collecting data in the background in your own mind on why and how this was going to work. And the word I love the most that you said about in all of this was you were obsessed. And I think that this is a really defining moment for any entrepreneur is that they are obsessed with learning something. They're obsessed with changing the world. They're obsessed with fixing a problem. And that, I think, really defines entrepreneurship on what makes you great or what makes you strive to get to greatness. So now kind of working your way through all of these roles that you were in, they were all pretty much centric around marketing and branding and really building that up. And you worked your way all the way up to uh, the senior level side of things. And while you were doing that, was it again, reinventing these brands? Was it coming in from that perspective of you guys don't have enough data or you're at the top of your game and I'm going to bring you to that next stage? How did you kind of look at these stages as you were working through these roles?
1: So I think there was always this, you know, obsession with how do we learn more about the consumer? How do we build more personalized connections? How do we understand their needs and preempt their needs, right? Like how do you, the famous, um, you know, Steve Jobs of like building things that people don't even know they want, right? Like how do you build that? And I think that what was really interesting for me, if you think about even my career, Arch, is like I started at Gillette and L'Oreal on the math side of the business, which is literally like, you know, you just put items on a shelf and they got to sell themselves. And then I moved to Estee Lauder, where you're selling in a department store or Sephora, where you have a beauty associate, somebody who can help you, who can guide you through the process. And what happened was I became obsessed with how do we use technology to sell better? How do we use technology to take that ne- next level of consumer data of understanding the consumers? And that was, you know, a real impetus for me to start Sentford. Was I felt that there was this level of innovation and, con- you know, one on one connection that technology enabled, uh, and I wanted to be part of that. And that's where I kind of made the jump to entrepreneurship to start Sentford,
0: which is phenomenal. And when, when you kind of came up with this idea, and, and I listened to lots of your stuff and read lots of things, which is obviously amazing, um, just the way you met your co-founder uh, was a great story. Um, how, how did you kind of turn that dial? Was it uh, you got to a, an endpoint in big corporate where you kind of felt you've accomplished everything, you saw everything, and now you wanted to go back? Because when you're... Kind of upper management, you're obviously doing very well from all aspects. And now to kind of go back to the grind, um, mm-hmm. even though you had the CMO title, a CMO is not a CMO in a startup. When you're four <laughs> people, you're not a CMO. You are a jack of all trades, or however you want to frame I, it. I was literally filling
1: then. little bottles of perfume and schlepping them in a bag. To did you know that the post office in Herald Square is open twenty? To- <laughs> that should I give bet. you a that's sense amazing. Of- <laughs> yeah,
0: that's good knowledge. It's good knowledge.
1: So, you know, I think that it was interesting because it was a transition. And I think that I have a lot of respect for the Estee Lauder's and L'Oreal's of the world. I think they've built incredible companies, but the speed at which they can innovate and adjust to new technologies is, is, you know, big boats are hard to turn. And so at some point I found myself at the time I was actually working for Elizabeth Arden and I was working on a special project for the CMO and I negotiated so that I could have Fridays off. And I figured, okay, Fridays, I'll do projects for startups. Uh, Maybe I'll just be a consultant. And, you know, within very quickly realized that startups are terrible consulting projects because A, they have no money to pay you. But B, the part that really struck me as I worked, and I probably worked on like 10 or 12 different projects is You know, I found startups and founders that were incredibly smart, that had really creative ideas. And it wasn't that they needed somebody to come in and tell them what to do. They they knew where they wanted to get to. But that journey from point A to point B, it was actually getting them there. And so it was like, you know, startups need a lot more than just consulting advice. Like you're either going to jump in and be a founder and build it. But sort of staying on the periphery and just being an advisor, uh, I wanted to have that full experience. And so that's that's what sort of pushed me to make the jump to to being an entrepreneur and, and joining as a co-founder of Setford.
0: I love it. And the thing is that you recognize what the push was. So you kind of were getting a flavor of both sides. It wasn't just cut and dry. It's amazing that you were able to kind of test it, work through the consulting side and and kind of really look at it and say, man, I could really do more here, or I could actually do this all myself. I'm going to actually shift into this. And I think that that's really, again, that entrepreneurial uh, drive that you've built into that obsession of how can I fix something or what can I fix? And I guess call it serendipitous that you met with your co-founder you guys come up with this great plan, uh, work on this idea, really dig this through. Uh, I guess at that time you found a couple of other uh, people that tied in that had some amazing expertise and you guys really started with, I would almost say the A plus team. You, You didn't have to go into business with a B team and just hoping that you would be able to make it through and then shift the team. You guys went in right away with a very solid team, a lot of experience and a lot of background knowledge to really drive this business forward. Whose responsibility was it to kind of raise the funds? Because you guys did a, a great job on that aspect as yeah. well while you were building the brand. Yeah.
1: And I credit Maria Nourislamova, who's the CEO of Scentbird and, and still continues there. She, she, she was very thoughtful from day one about the fact that it needed to be a team Um, I think the fact that Andre, our CTO, was there from day one, enabled us. And don't forget, this is 2014, where everything was being built from scratch. Uh, I think right now, there are a lot of tools in Shopify that enable you to probably start a little faster. But I mean, Andre did an incredible job just building from scratch, and Maria really thought through and and was leading a lot of the uh, fundraising.
0: Amazing. So now, the exciting part happens. You're wearing a lot of hats. You're building this company. What was it like to kind of go back to almost when you first started at Gillette in a startup and having to do kind of everything, but putting together these real plans, executing them and trying to figure out what works because you guys started off the first year, like any startup, just trying to figure it out and try to get to where you needed to be. What was the drive for you and and was it exciting? Was it scary? Was it, oh my God, I can't believe I've done this. What was the, uh, what was your reaction at this time?
1: I think that it's a lot of blood. it's it's the the way I talk about it, and I think it's something that I talk to founders a lot, is the emotional roller coaster. I think there's a big part of being a founder and an entrepreneur that is about the emotional roller coaster because the highs and the lows are so augmented when it's your own business, right? Again, I spent fifteen, almost twenty years in corporate. You know, you have good days, you have bad days. your project is rejected. your your one advertising program does amazing. Like you have good days and bad days. But when it's your startup, like it's your baby, right? And so for me, I, I think one of the things that I had to learn very early on was like, you know, i'm I'm a very high energy person. I'm a very uh, effusive person. And so sort of managing that a little bit because, it's a long road. It's a long slog and there's a lot of ups and downs and there's a lot of good things and not so good things. So I think for me, because it was my baby, because it was something we were starting from scratch, I think sort of managing the emotions of that was a big piece of it. Um, I also think that there is a sort of resetting of the mindset of, um, you know, fail fast Right. Uh, it's not something that is taught in corporate. And so this idea to me was incredibly empowering and freeing, but also kind of terrifying of like, let's just try it. If it doesn't work, we move on. Right. And so even within Scentbird, I mean, we we started with a different business model. We we start, you know, we tried. So first we tried just recommendations and and thinking that it would be an affiliate model. That's a horrible idea. Don't do that. Uh, then we tried a try before you buy, where we would send you three full sizes with sample sizes and you would keep what you like, send back the rest. That was an even worse business model. Uh, lots of fraud, terrible things, lots of shipping costs. Don't do that either. And finally, we we landed upon the, the subscription model, which is where, where the company is today. But you know, even that of that level of iteration and shifting and having the openness and sort of the you know, it's something I always talk about, like the most successful founders have this, you know, innately kind of opposite push and pull, where on the one hand, they need to believe, you know, so much in their business, they're going to bash through walls. But on the other hand, they need to be humble enough and sort of thoughtful and just listen, right? Listen to your customer such a That you can pivot, that you can integrate feedback, that you can evolve and sort of having that push and pull, um, I think is something really that really sets successful founders apart and and is is something that was hard to cultivate initially.
0: That really helped build out the the culture behind the brand and what you guys were working on as well. And and, and now that you have four co-founders, there's a real fine balance of smarts in the room. but they're bucketed to each individual's areas of expertise, which is also interesting because a lot of startups and I I don't have a percentage, but they're usually one founder. Maybe there's 10% that are two founders and then anything over that is probably sitting in that, you know, maybe three to 5%. So you're kind of an outlier group and successfully you guys were able to work through this and pull it off. And I kind of think that, you know, more hands makes less work, which means four founders probably were able to drive the business in a lot faster, rapid speed in growth and understanding and operability and being able to maneuver quickly. What learning can you take from all of your corporate time that really helped you define what you were doing in this startup?
1: Well, I mean, I think that for me, number one, you know, I was the one who had been in the U.S. for the longest. I knew the American customer. I knew the the beauty customer. So I think that that really helps and just both from defining the product, but also on the B2B side. You know, as I said, one of the biggest pieces was the unit economics were greatly impacted by building direct relationships with brands because we would get. Product in exchange for data or marketing, you know, and that really helped the profitability of the business. And so coming from the industry, having those business relationships, being somebody who was known in the industry uh, was very important, particularly in those early days where you know people were like, What are you doing? A subscription? What does that mean? Do people want that much perfume? Um, I think having somebody who was a known voice could be very helpful. Um, and you know, I, I think that's something that. Now that I'm an investor and I'm constantly meeting founders, um, you know, you don't have to come from the industry, but I think the really smart founders figure out a way to have that authority in the industry, uh, whether it's themselves or some really key hires. But I do think it helps, Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, having too much industry knowledge sort of can be uh, can backfire, right? Because you, you just can't imagine it any other way. So, I do think sometimes it helps to be an outsider. But once you start scaling, having somebody who can navigate, who can help you sort of, you know be the official door opener, <laughs> I think that's really important um, as you scale.
0: and I think the key word there is that as you start to scale, it's really important that you do have that background knowledge because I'm sure that uh, when your co-founder was raising funds, you were probably on the top of the list as this is our rock star because, of the industry background, the expertise, the knowledge, it really defines the business at that point, because even yourself as an investor, uh, you know, there's probably a really low chance that you're going to dive into an early stage company that has nobody with any background or any understanding of the, of the, of that space, because then it becomes, well, they're going to spend a lot of time kicking tires before somebody will let them in the door. So that probably carried a lot of weight too, and value for you guys. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that and, you know, this this fills over into the conversation, the investing conversation. But, you know, the question that's always in my mind is why is the, this the best team to solve this problem? Right. And whether it's industry knowledge or just an authentic view, you know, part of your job as as a founder, when you're when you're talking to investors is to convince you know that person that's sitting on the other side. Why are you the best person here? And part of it can be, you know, a team that has experience. Part of it can be just a unique perspective, an insight, uh, an, an expertise, um, ap- applying sort of uh, a discipline from one side to the other. So there's different ways to approach to sort of approach that. But I do think it's really important um, to the success of a company.
0: I love it. And and we try to share to a founder is that, you know, go out and find somebody in your space that has 30 years experience, work with them, talk with them, get coached, because that brings a lot of Um, background knowledge into your space. And that can help you move a lot quicker. And really, at the end of the day, as you mentioned, scaling is kind of number one, when it comes to any business, it is how fast you can move. Because once you start something great, a lot of people start to mirror it. And you're trying to avoid that mirroring effect so that you can move and propel your business forward faster. To go to the comment you made about the investing side. Now you guys are starting to move, I think in total, you raised 24 million, 27 million in Uh, in funding up to series A, which is pretty phenomenal. Now, how did you guys approach this when you were going out to raise these funds? Is there any memorable things that you said, you know what, here's what I took from raising funds, one, two, and three, this is key. And today you're still using them as an investor looking for those three things.
1: You know, I think that one of the things that I always talk about and I think it's particularly important for women. I think it's particularly important if you're raising for a category that is not well known. Um, you know, investors are humans and investors only have the framework of what they know. And so one of the things that we learned very quickly when we were pitching Scentbird was, you know, we talked to mostly male investors and they'd say, Yeah, perfume. How big is the perfume category? Who who cares about perfume, right? And so the way to address that wasn't, oh, women deserve better. Nobody cares, right? (laughs) Like, but if you start to say, well, the fragrance category is actually a $40 billion category, which is five times the size of the blades and razors category, which they related to because they were guys and they shaved, oh, all of a sudden you start to think, oh, this category is kind of interesting. This is actually pretty big. Right. And so that's one of the pieces that we learned very quickly is I think for founders, you know, to really think about like that total addressable market, giving a reference point, making it something that's relatable Um, because, you know, founders, only, again, investors only know what they know. And so help them sort of see the big opportunity in what you're doing. I think that 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 was a real lesson that we learned. Um, I think the other one was sort of thinking through why why was it a technology company? How were we integrating technology and clearly articulating that value proposition? Um, I think, you know, whereas obviously it's a fragrance company, it's also a data company. The amount of information that you gather from customers, what fragrance, you know, they get to pick a fragrance every month. What fragrance did they like? Did they review it positively or negatively? Uh, what were the emotions? There's incredible rich data that we could uh, leverage. And so understanding sort of the full value proposition of what you're building, I think is also important.
0: I love it. And One, I was a huge fan of this, of your brand and this business. And the reason being is that I had the same kind of, um, as a youth, I didn't like these massive bottles of cologne. Uh, I didn't like to have the same scent. So to me, it bothered me that this is all I could get, or I got the little tiny vial that you touched once and it was done and you're like, this is kind of useless. So I do. I liked how you guys approached the market. I like how you tested a lot of these different variables too from the different ways to, to run the SaaS model and find the one that stuck best with your consumers. And I think that sometimes startups get stuck in their own ways or they forget that there's so much more of the market or so many other things that they can test to really learn more about what their consumer is looking for and the real problem that they're trying to solve. So you guys did a, a, obviously a pretty amazing job in order to, to successfully uh, build your your company and move it forward. And then when the venture capital side came in uh, using the data, using the knowledge to kind of sell them through, obviously worked out quite well and it supported you guys as you started to grow. Uh, Is there kind of a notable piece that you would say and share to founders that, you know, is it just the data? Is it, you know, find somebody that understands your business model as an investor. It doesn't matter if they're female or male. Find somebody that's invested in this category first. Go to them because you have a higher chance of closing them. Because I think a lot of the frustration in the world today is, I don't know where to go for one, when it comes to getting investors. And two, I keep getting more no's than I get yeses, and it's beating me up. And then I just bail out of the company because maybe I'm not a good fit. And I think that that's the whole wrong way to look at it and that there's better ways to kind of isolate and go forward and move to the right people that are going to invest in you or at least support you along your journey.
1: So I think that so many thoughts there. So first of all, um, I think you almost have to, prepare yourself and kind of, it's like a little bit of, a, of an internal game, get to the no fast. <laughs> like the piece of advice I would give you on that, like feeling beat up and it's, it is is going to be mostly no's, right? Like the reality is as a VC, now that I sit on the other side, I probably see a hundred companies and invest in one. That's probably the ratio that we invested. And in. I think that's pretty typical of a venture capitalist. We're all looking for that outlier. We all have to fall in love and believe that this is that billion dollar plus, 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 whatever. Now it's 10 million, billion, I don't know, uh, opportunity. So I think that as a founder, you just have to be, um, it's almost like if you go in with the expectation that you're just going to get through this, it's a lot easier. So I think that's the first thing is being very realistic about your sort of the, the metrics. And the other piece of it is, you know, don't waste your time. Uh, You know, I appreciate founders that ask me like, what's your average check size? Where do you invest? Do you invest pre-revenue? Do you like, you know, cut through because frankly uh, it's better for you and for the, for the investor. If they're not a fit, they're not a fit. Move on, build a relationship. Don't burn bridges. Just say thank you and move on. Um, Maybe it's for the next round. That's all good. So, I think that's that's a really important piece. And then you asked me another question about um the the ability sort of the the lessons on the fundraising Correct. so so I think that, oh, in terms of like finding your tribe and finding your people, so listen, first and foremost, traction matters like I gotta i you know, I, I'm gonna be brutal here, but like talk is great. Potential is great, but like do right. Like build things people want. I think, you know, I am, we went through Y Combinator. It was very much a a forming piece of my journey as an entrepreneur. And I very much believe, you know, their philosophy, just like get it out there, you know, build, do things that don't scale, show some traction, get things done. So that's the first piece of advice I would say is that, you know, at At some point, very, very soon, like start to show traction, start to show support. And, you know, if you can't yet show sales, what else can you show? How else can you show progress? I think that's really, really important and something that, you know, sometimes I'll get pitched by founders and and they get so lost in sort of the romance of the brand or the, the vision of the idea. What have you done and how do you plan to make money? Like very fundamental questions like that. I think that's don't look side of that. Make sure you're you're kind of nailing that piece. So I would say that's number one. And number two, yes, I do think, you know, to the point about like, you know, sifting through and getting to the nose, do your homework. Uh, you know, what's really fascinating and, and sort of funny about uh, VCs is that like, we're all screaming from the mountaintops, what have we invested in? And there's so much written about most of us, most of us are so busy pro- producing content. You can get a very good sense of what uh, VCs do and don't like. So, you know, use that to your advantage. find Find you know, don't go looking for trouble. Go looking for winners. Go find those those funds that believe in your vision, that believe in your space, and learn you know, learn the vocabulary, learn the language, learn the metrics that they're looking for. Do you fit? Then leverage that.
0: I love it. There's so many lines there that uh, I can't even unfold all of them. There's so many good lines there, uh, but I, I do like the best one is do it. Just do get it done. And, 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 it, it, and the reason why this fits so well is because I think today we are a little laxadaisy or maybe we're working towards something and tomorrow I can do something different and I'll work towards that uh, versus just getting it out there. And I like the tech stars and, you know, just build it, get it out there and see what happens. What kind of traction can you get? Are they going to like it? And then pivot and pivot and pivot and pivot until you find the right group that loves what you do. And then be obsessed over it so that you can crush it. Yes. I love it. So now taking where you've moved out of the business that you've built over, I think it was so close to six, seven years that you built. Yeah. And now you've jumped into the, the VC world. What was the transition? What was the impetus that said, you know what, I need to, I, I think when you jumped into, I want to get into a startup. It was all this background learning from when you were a kid to now all the work you had. you're like, you know what? I need to go in and rebuild something and make this great. And now it looks like you're kind of doing the same thing in the VC world. You're like, there's some broken stuff here. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to try and repair this and fix this space too, because I think this whole thing, this doesn't make sense. Is that fair to say that you're you're really trying to look at this VC venture world in a different lens and trying to solve that as a, a bigger problem as your next kind of career move?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, for me, it was a very organic start. So I love working with early stage founders. I love having those conversations. There's something magical about that zero to 10 stage, whatever zero to 10 means, that when you start to see that inflection point where there's just a little bit of product market fit and you can really blow up and and scale. And so to me it's it's a privilege. It's fun. It's exciting to talk to founders that are building things to be able to give them advice. And and frankly, what I found, even as a founder myself, is that often when you talk to investors, the conversations were very theoretical or, you know, the, the usual, you know, and a, 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 an investor will be like, oh, we're so value added. We just sent them a Wall Street Journal article about their competition. I'm like, yeah, that's not really helpful. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, it, it for me, it started with, you know, founders, again, like very specific needs that they had and, and the ability to say not just sort of in generic terms, but in very specific terms, like this is how I solved it when I was in your situation. These are some of the people I talked to. These are some of the tools I used. I think, you know, it, it really just started with these conversations. And at some point. Uh, my partner and I, his name is Herman, and, and you know his background is all in asset management. And we started to invest together. We did eighteen angel investments, and what we realized is we just had incredible deal flow. Um, and so some of these investments have done extremely, extremely well. Um, but I'll tell you, like for example, one example is a company called Caraway. Um, Nathan, I met him literally went for a coffee in, in Pan cotidian in Soho the beginning of 2018, I want to say. And there was something about this guy. And I think that this is really important, particularly for product uh, startup. He understood the consumer insight, right? This idea of chemical-free cookware. If you use Teflon, there is chemicals and those chemicals go into your food. So I think there was an insight there. There was an insight about, People want pretty things in their kitchens. They want nice colors, right? So there was a lot around the brand and the packaging and the way it was stored. That was all really interesting. But the real differentiator, and I think one of the things that I I think a lot, where like there's all this 75% that is acquisition, retention, right? How do you build that flywheel of the marketing? And then supply chain, unit economics. And the fact that he had the whole picture, that made me so excited. So that's like, the type of of companies that we angel invested. So, anyways, going back to to Red by Capital. So we did those over like a period of about two years. And what ended up happening is, you know, we have friends who have a little money, and they'd be like, "Wow, we we want to, you know, we want in on these companies. These are, you know, you have incredible deal flow. You're seeing these incredible companies. They're doing amazing. Can we put in a little money?" And initially, I was like, "Sure, I'll I'll go we'll talk to the founder for you. Um, no problem." And you know, founders would, you know, it happened to us two or three times where founders be like, "Look, we love you, we Rachel, we we want to give you a bigger allocation. We want you more involved in the company, but we don't want the random people in the cap table." And so, you know, and after it happened a couple of times, I was like, "Okay, so here's where the opportunity is," Um, and that's how we came up with sort of the the seedling of the idea that became Red by Capital.
0: That's a great story, and it kind of works the same way that as you start to put a focus on something, something more is going to come out of it. And as you started to work on angel investing, it started to kind of uh, move forward into a bigger, better direction, because I guess in a way it was meant to be where you were supposed to be uh, working next. So that's pretty cool. So now just, I guess the last kind of point to, to where you guys are now, what types of investments do you look for? Is it CPG? Is it heavily branded? What are the real main focuses of, of red bike capital?
1: So you know it's interesting because I actually spend a lot of time talking about the fact that we are not just, we're consumer tech, and uh, frankly, where I see the opportunities in venture is a little bit broader. Uh, so just sort of a, as a definition, we're we're an early stage. Red Bike is an early stage fund. Uh, We're based in New York. And our focus really is startups that drive the economy and improve lives. So more specifically, what that means is we invest across consumer technologies, across FinTech. So think a lot about uh, credit. And and as I mentioned, my partner actually comes from an asset management and was a portfolio manager in credit. So we have a lot of experience in-house on credit payments, again, Scentbird processed half a million transactions a month. We have a bit of experience on payments, Uh, credit cards, financial education, financial access. So we do a lot around fintech. Um, I think the second piece that's really exciting is just commerce infrastructure and marketplaces. So if you think about the last couple of years there's an explosion of vendors, right? There's, I think it's 1.9 million Shopify vendors and 1.7 million Amazon vendors. And all of these people need. So, you know, across the stack, acquisition, retention, supply chain, logistics, uh, distribution, marketplaces. So we see huge opportunity to continue to innovate and provide tools for this booming group of um, just the commerce piece of it. And the third piece is around consumer and consumer tech. We really focus on you know that part of improving people's lives. So we think a lot about health and wellness. We think a lot about conscious consumption um, because we feel like you know. Again, and to my obsession with where the consumer is going, um, I think, you know, never in the history of humanity have we been more uh, aware and concerned with wellness. Right. In, in every context of it, whether it's physical wellness, mental wellness, financial wellness. Uh, so that's one of the themes that we really think a lot about.
0: I think the capitalistic markets have driven everybody to the DeFi moment, which we're all thinking about it because it's really the only way left to survive. Is that you need to be self-managed in all your finances, your health, uh, your well-being, everything. So, hundred uh, percent agree with you. If if uh, you're not taking care of this. people that were taking care of it they've gotten beaten up so bad by the markets that they don't want to do it anymore so you really do have to (laughs) start to educate yourself and become smarter at it because in the next five years uh, you're going to be your own everything and uh, including your own teacher so you better start educating and learning quickly because uh, it's all going to kind of fall into you as an individual to drive it forward and take care of the things you need
1: well and i think it goes it goes from both sides of the market i also think that you know, never in the history of humanity have consumers been more educated. There is some, you know, technology has enabled to your point about go get educated. Now you can easily, right? I, I, my my 14 year old son can go learn whatever he wants. It's all available. And so I think that across every piece of, of sort of the ecosystem, as, as you think about, you know, consumer facing technologies, the consumer is, you know, so much more educated in finance, in you know, when you think about crypto and how complex it is, and yet consumers are becoming so educated. In skincare, there's this thing called, you know, skin influencers. Consumers know about you know complex chemicals in ways that were were unthinkable. So I, I think it goes like across a very broad swath.
0: But is it Is it really deep knowledge that they're gaining or is it surface level? So you you mentioned your partner has a very deep understanding of an area that you invest in. Do I expect that everybody in the finance world now has that same experience because they went and watched a YouTube video? (laughs) I'm going to kind of guess that that's a no, but um, I think it's surface level, which is to everybody else probably seems like they're now a God in education and knowledge, but I think there's still a lack of, uh, expertise. And I think that that's where you're going to find a big difference is that people will have surface level knowledge, but they'll never be the expert. And the unfortunate is they'll feel they're an expert until they lose all their money on Bitcoin. And then they realize, wow, I really did need some help or I did need somebody else to drive me in this space. So I I think there still has to be that professional. You're still looking for that person that understands something better. But I think now it's that instead of being oblivious to everything, you now have at least a high level understanding, which I think is better than nothing. And I think that that's helping people really push forward in this innovation world, which is the reason why innovation is changing so quickly, because people are taking that little bit of knowledge and changing the world with it. And I think that's what makes this whole thing phenomenal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, to your point, look, I think you have to be infinitely optimistic to be a venture capitalist, but, but uh, buyer beware. I do think that you know, you have to be smart as a consumer. You have to be smart as a venture capitalist. You have to sort of, to your point about sort of surface level knowledge, uh, if it's too good to be true, it probably is, right? <laughs> it's, it's. Uh, I think there is that, you know, optimism and that access to information that's very, very positive. But I also think we're all, to your point, we're all responsible for our own well-being and we all have to sort of invest in that piece of it.
0: Wholeheartedly agree 100%. It's time that people do step up all around and start to learn about a little bit about everything so that they can uh, take life, I guess, by the hand and move it forward. So very well shared. We're going to kind of now transition into kind of a, we'll call it a case study, but kind of interested if, you know, if there's, there is a case study that you could share with us uh, around a founder um, and really share to the audience what it, what it takes for an entrepreneur to be an entrepreneur, Uh, and maybe it's a a story of something that you went through or another startup that you work with, but really trying to understand what um, an example, I guess, of what it takes to be a founder and, you know, breaking the odds and winning or maybe failing, but we like great heartfelt stories. So is there something that you can really share that defines what it takes to be an entrepreneur?
1: Well, I will tell you, you know, I'll talk about one of our one of our first investments is a company called True State. And I think what's interesting about this story is that we met the founders very, very early in the journey. And, you know, initially they both had other jobs. Initially they sort of had a germ of an idea and it's an interesting one. So it's an estate settlement platform so that you can settle your estate at the click of a button. So think TurboTax for estate. So, um, you know, the reason I was attracted to it is I personally had gone through the experience with my uncle, uh, who passed away and you know, I love my uncle, but I didn't have an idea of where his 401k was or, or any of those information. And what you realize is, you know, if you have a hundred million dollars, you're good. You have people, they will deal with it. But for most people, when you have estates, you know, the people dealing with it are lawyers, insurance, the family, it's very complex. And it's really sort of stuck in the 90s. And you have to like, go on the phone and say, hey, I need to do this. Uh, so I thought the, the insight was so interesting of just sort of applying technology to something that and what I, you know, personally loved is, you know, it's really improving people's lives. I, having dealt with it, it's it's a very difficult time and making it better. It's also not trendy, right? Like, people aren't going to stop dying. Right? It's not an optional one. But what was interesting was sort of the journey of the founders. So when we started, they both had other jobs. They were sort of just going down the, the, the process. And, you know, one of the things that we I, I really pushed them hard on was, you know, they had the vision, they had the idea, but to the conversation that we had earlier about sort of building the founding team, they didn't have the technology uh, element. They didn't have a CTO and they were sort of outsourcing. And I said, guys, you have got to get that piece in. Um, and so, you know, over conversations about six months, uh, eventually they did uh, raise the money that we looking for and we were part of the fundraise. But what was really exciting is that the people who led the team was another uh, fund called Impression Ventures, and they are very tech focused, they're entrepreneurs themselves. And what I've seen is, you know, going back to the founders is sort of a transformation in how they've accelerated the company, how they've changed, um, how they think about building. It's really exciting when, when a founder sort of, You know, I think there was a point where they were like, do I quit my job? And then they did. And then do I go for this? And they did. And then they started to bring in the right people and what that can do to accelerate your business. I think that's a really exciting. And and, and I think as a founder, you really have to think about that. Like, what's your unlock? What takes you to that next level?
0: I love that. And, you know, there's a lot of companies that have been successful and they were still working full-time jobs and then they switched over and you know took it to the moon so i think there's a lot to say about managing risk and i think sometimes we may forget the risk part of it we just dive all in thinking this is it and we don't realize that there is a lot of other stuff packed into this that we didn't pay attention to or didn't see or didn't listen to in a podcast and oh my (laughs) god i need some help so this is great that they took that approach and it's very stable but at the same time i'm sure they're doing very well so that's a that's a great story All right, we're going to switch over to our rapid fire questions and we're almost there. Okay,
1: let's do this. All
0: right, here we go. So you're going to pick one or the other coming from an investor standpoint. Founder or co-founder? Founder. Founder. Unicorn or a four-year 10X exit?
1: Four-year 10X.
0: Tech or CPG? Tech. NFT or Web 3.0?
1: Web 3.0.
0: AI or blockchain? Blockchain. First time founder or second, third time founder?
1: Second, third time founder.
0: First money in or series A?
1: First money in.
0: Angel or VC? VC.
1: Board seat or observer? Whatever I can be most helpful with. I like it. Safe or convertible note? Ideally convertible note, but we'll look at both.
0: Okay. Lead or follow? We'll do both. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing? Founders. Number of companies investing per year?
1: We're doing about one a month, so twelve.
0: Sick! I love it.
1: <laughs> preferred terms? Um, what do you? Yes. Uh,
0: well, preferred terms. I, I guess if you're looking at it from, uh, you'll do as you mentioned, convertible note. You'll do convertible safe, notes. So- yeah.
1: Okay, that's what you meant. I
0: guess investor friendly or founder friendly. friendly. Okay. Depends Um, on what it is, on
1: what the terms are. Yeah.
0: Okay, perfect. Uh, two qualities a startup needs in order to stand out in your eyes.
1: Unique perspective, differentiated perspective, and grit.
0: Ooh, I love the grit one. Yeah, it's a battle zone, man. They got to take a lot and give a lot. So that's good. I like it. Okay, we're gonna now pop into the personal side. Book or movie?
1: Book. Superman or Batman? Batman. Restaurant or picnic? Restaurant.
0: Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Bezos. Mountain or
1: beach? Beach. Bike or run? I hate both. (laughs) A bike, which is really ironic considering the name of the fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. a lot, and that's another story.
0: <laughs> uh, Big Mac or Chicken McNugget?
1: Ah, uh, Big Mac.
0: Trophy or money? Sorry? Trophy <laughs> or money? Money. Beer or wine? Wine. Camera or Bumble phone? Camera. King or Rich? Rich concert or amusement park concert fortune cookie or birthday cake birthday cake TED talk or book reading Ooh. TED talk most famous person that pops in your mind now
1: I don't know uh, uh sorry I'm blanking I should have prepared for this no this is a rapid fire there's no preparing
0: yeah. just whatever yeah. pops in your mind
1: You know, I just think of what's going on in the world. And I think of uh, Winston Churchill and leadership and Europe. So that's really what I'm thinking about.
0: I like it. First brand that pops in your mind.
1: Nescafe, because I need more coffee. (laughs) All right. That's good. Favorite sports team. Yankees. Nice. Okay. Favorite book. Love in the Times of Cholera. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Sorry, her name was? Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He's like magical realism. It's Latin American literature.
0: Done. Okay, very cool. What is your favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie?
1: For a long time, I loved the Fish Called Wanda. I just love Jamie Lee Curtis's character. <laughs> I know it's an oldie, but I really loved it.
0: That's awesome. I, I remember watching that many times as a kid.
1: Yeah, I loved it I just thought it was funny I'm
0: going to have to watch that again just because it was so long ago Oh, that's yeah. cool um, Okay uh, What is the meaning of success to you?
1: Legacy I think uh, success is about what you leave behind how you leave the world how you live those people that mean something to you I think for me the legacy piece is really important
0: That's awesome Very well shared Last question what is your superpower?
1: Connections. I am a natural connector. I'm very good at looking at point A and point B, making the relationship. Consumer mindset, how does it connect? Person A, person B, how do they link? I'm very, very, that's my superpower connections.
0: I love it. Connections are good and, and you... Uh I think from our conversation, I, I find it that uh, carrying your knowledge and being able to network people into all of that is a, is a brilliant way to to keep sharing and moving forward. So, so I want to thank you very much for your time and participating with us today. Before we jump and turn everything over to you for the last word, um, if you can share what is the best way for people to get a hold of you, And then as we like to do, we'd like to give you the last word. So if you can share anything you like to what um, to founders or to investors, I turn it over to you, but I want to thank you very much for all of your time today, Rachel, you were phenomenal. I can show you, I wrote so many notes. It's not even funny, (laughs) but uh, I I appreciate all your time. You, uh, You, you came up with so much great content. It's amazing, but thank you again.
1: Thank you. It was really a great conversation. Um, So in terms of getting in touch with me, I'm pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So at our 10 Brink one, or just look me up on LinkedIn. That's always the easiest way. Uh, I'm pretty active in both. And I think in terms of um, advice, I mean, I think a lot about the founder journey. I think that uh, it's a tough road. It's a lonely road, but it's such a rewarding road. And so you know, keep building, keep believing, keep thinking, keep challenging, keep sort of innovating and pushing. Uh, find those believers, find those investors that are going to be in your um, corner, not only in the good times, but also in the hard times, because there will come. Um, I think it's really important be thoughtful about, you know, who you bring into your cap table. Think about, you know, sort of the diversity of perspective, the diversity of experience, Um, you know, as we were talking about building teams, I think all of those are really important. And, and I think, I I hope, you know, whoever's listening that they build great companies.
0: Brilliant! I love it. Rachel phenomenal. Thank you very much again, for all your time today, Uh, all of your advice and everything you shared. It was very well uh, shared. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. I really enjoyed having the conversation with Rachel, for many reasons, because like the trifactor effect of working in big corporate, working for a startup, and then going on and becoming a GP and running uh, investments. But I just loved all of her insights. A lot of great, a lot of great uh, lines that she utilized um, that really defined startups and investing. Fantastic, you know, um, you know, try and move on. That was one of them. Be obsessed. I love that one. Be obsessed. You know, that's that fifth gear. We all need to have that fifth gear if you want to be really crushing it in anything you do. Uh, build things that people want. Show traction. Get things done. Do man, love those lines. All fantastic. Uh, so much there to unpack. Enjoy uh, the conversation. And if there is uh, any other things that I would say that really defined our our chat, there is the build relationships, uh, test the market, uh, learn more about the people that you're going to be working with. Uh, and again, the last thing is you know, be obsessed be obsessed. Thank you very much, Rachel and everybody. Thank you all for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share it with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit opn.ninja. Thank you and have a great day.